to Inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clyde Built Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit, COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP. From unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sega, Sally Milhook and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth Percent, a charity who is partnering with our show Inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Cosmo Sheldrake. What's been going on today? Tell me about. Well, this morning, uh, things have started serious negotiations inside the negotiations. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, now that the leaders have left, a lot of um, the rest of us can get on with our networking, uh, which is going on at pace. I met lots of uh, old friends, people uh, talking to each other, conspiring to do things together to tackle climate change. That's really where the action is. The action is not inside the negotiations, uh, trying to get agreements to do things, but outside the negotiation by people who are actually doing things, anything from research to action to fundraising to funding. Uh, there are many, many different people here doing many different things. And what the COP allows us to do is to network at a scale that we can't do the rest of the year. So, you know, I come to the COP every year for several weeks. And in those few weeks, I meet hundreds of my friends from all over the world whom I would otherwise not meet. That's why coming to a COP physically is such a delight, you know. I miss last year not being able to, uh, not having the COP. Uh, but it is one of the delights is just meeting old friends and catching up with them, doing new things with them. Um, that's what I do most of my time when I'm at a COP. I just spend it talking to friends and making new friends like yeah. you. Yeah, it's so nice. <laughs> um, you know, we're called Inside COP, right? And you just spoke of conspiracies. And so this sounds like quite a fun place to enter. What, is there any, what kind of conspiracies are we talking about here? Oh, all kinds <laughs> of conspiracies, all kinds of conspiracies. So my particular conspiracy for COP26 is loss and damage, all right? It's a politically very intractable issue. Uh, I would say the COP26 presidency have tried to downplay it to the, as much as they can. They've done a little bit, but it's not enough. And we're not, we're not going to let them get away with that. They have to do a lot more than they are trying to do. Well, if we can help in any way. Well, please do. So I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to sell you a bill of goods, which has a very uh, odd name. It's called the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage. They're going to tell you that that's what they've done and that's a very good thing. Uh, I hope they do. It's a good thing if they can do it, but it's a very little good thing. Mm. And it's simply not commensurate with the scale of the problem. So we expected them, and they are not doing, a hell of a lot more. And we're going to force them to do a hell of a lot more between now and the end of the COP. I can't believe that the atmosphere has really changed from the past two days to today. I feel much more at ease here. Yeah. <clears throat> and I feel 
yeah, very comforted by the people I'm talking to, and the excitement is, is that the, the fresh Absolutely. I think, you know, what you're seeing now today is a normal pop. We have come to where we, we've done, this is the 26th time we're meeting, right? So this is not something new. But what was done the last few days, it was hyped out of all proportion yeah. by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, yeah. as if, you know, last chance saloon, yeah. if you don't do it here. There's some logic to, you know, making it a high-profile thing to get people to move, but then the, the flip side of that is if it doesn't happen, you feel it's a failure, all right? And unfortunately, it didn't happen. And so, you know, a few little things happen, but they're not good enough. But in the negotiations, it's all about, you know, working through the details, making incremental progress, and hopefully moving things in the right direction. Um, and that's what we do at the COPS, and that's what we like doing at the COPS. Uh, sometimes we do better than other times, but we never give up. We continue. And that we will, until Absolutely. tomorrow. Until tomorrow. <laughs>
And for example, also all these design weeks that you have around the globe, eh, from London to Sao Paulo and from Mexico to Dubai, you have all these design weeks. A lot of innovation is taking place there, but it's only happening and only seen and noticed in that specific area. And that needs to be opened up. No, I want to know one, like, if you have one tangible example of what design can do in the climate fight. Yeah, sure, sure. I, of course, I have tons of examples, but I have a very specific one, and which I like very much. It's a startup that we have been supporting with our organization. It's called Living Coffin. So it's quite funny. This one is not about life, but this one is about death. So what happens when you die? You go into a coffin and they put you under the ground. Living coffin is made out of um, uh, fungi. So that means that you will be buried in this coffin, but this coffin will disappear within four weeks, leaving no trace, no impact, completely sustainable, regenerative, whatever you want to call it. I think that's sort of the ultimate way to design ourselves out of this mess. So it's like a regeneration of soil. Exactly. Thanks to a exactly. person sadly yeah. dying. That yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. Mushrooms and fungal um, plants have been a really like thread throughout the whole program. I think we need to do something on this. because. Yeah, because it's there, it grows, it's strong. You can really make super strong material out of it. And it's, it easily degrades when you put it under the ground. Yeah. It leaves no traces. Leaves no trace, and that's what we need to do. Thank you exactly. so much for joining us. Thank you. Hello, lovely to meet you. Hi. Can you please tell me your name and where you're from? I'm Sherry Kennedy, uh, and I'm with Sustainable Energy for All, based in Vienna. Okay, amazing. Well, first of all, what does uh, SE for All do? SE for All, uh, basically what we try to do, well, our mandate is to ensure that the 759 million people out there in the world who do not have access to energy currently get access by 2030. And we also have a mandate to ensure efficiency. Um, so, you know, basically we are the energy the energy people at the conference and we're trying to put insert energy into the mix of the conversation here at COP. Energy efficiency particularly. Efficiency, access, um, yes. Amazing, thank you so much. Um, hello, I'm moving over <laughs> around the table. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. What's your name, please? My name's Jim Walker. I also work for Sustainable Energy for All. Well, we've done the explanation of what the Sustainable uh, SE for All does, so would you like to tell us a bit more about how you're feeling today, what you think COP is doing in terms of energy access and energy efficiency? And So, there's a lot going on. There's, a, there's, a, you know, there's, there's, there's you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people here. There are multiple conversations happening. Each day has a theme. Today is Energy Day, so today is a big day for us because it's something that we major on as an organisation. Um, there's, I think, a sense of optimism and momentum here, and this, uh, this is sort of, uh, it's been, you know, tagged by many people as sort of last chance hotel on mm. getting climate change done. And sort of John Kerry was at the pavilion yesterday saying this is sort of the last best chance to solve climate change just to make sure we get a sort of a meaningful outcomes from these two weeks for us as my colleague was saying you know it's the 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 task at hand is not only to make sure that we have climate change we're on track to get to net zero emissions which is keep global warming between 1.5 below 1.5 degrees centigrade um there's an energy poverty crisis 
in the world, largely centered on sub-Saharan Africa, but also in, in parts of Southeast Asia and South America. Uh, nearly 800 million people without electricity at all. There's still 3 billion people on the planet that depend upon charcoal and collected firewood for cooking. Uh, incredibly dangerous, unhealthy, um, and that's an energy problem. Uh, so energy is it's kind of the golden thread that runs through development. It's like no clean energy, no development, uh, and you've got a significant portion of the world being left behind by our energy infrastructure at the moment. Uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, which governments agreed to in 2015, Goal 7, which is the one that we're really focused on, is basically to get the energy access gap closed by 2030, also to double down on renewables and energy efficiency. When you put Paris on top of that, when you put the sort of increasing urgency around climate change, the task is to basically end energy poverty by 2030 and still be on track for Paris. So you need you need to transition away from clean from 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 dirty sources of fuel, uh, in addition to lots of other things by uh, by mid-century. We need to get to net zero. But in the process, you've got to bring energy to millions of people still. Um, and that energy has to be clean. So, you know, there's, there's, it needs, we need the finance on the table. You need all of the infrastructure around good policy. But you need ambition as well. So you need to step up to the plate, enough money on the table, get the job done. And that's our job. It seems like it's a very big challenge to have to have this rising demand for energy and yeah. rising... Um, quite rightly, a rising amount of households having access to energy whilst also needing to reduce the consumption globally by a, uh, by a lot. How do the um, how does the rise and the fall that are needed, um, how do they come together? So if you look at sub-Saharan Africa now, you've got 50% of the population of children and teenagers. So the median age in sub-Saharan Africa is 19.7 years. Wow. Uh, and so uh, that's an entire continent, continent looking for opportunity for jobs um, and uh, for innovation and that has to be delivered through clean energy you know on the positive side the economics on clean energy is, is radically transformed in the last 10 years so uh, solar power battery storage um, smart grids energy efficient technology all of those things are advancing at an incredible rate partly driven by leadership from governments like you know, Germany and California, who sort of 20 years ago were really sort of pushing the, 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 moving the needle on, on the economics of, of solar PV. Uh, some of those are starting to trickle their way through now to, to the countries that need them most. Um, still not making their way through in the way that we're getting the benefits here. So the, the, the cost of a, the solar panel in a, in a remote community in sub-Saharan Africa has not come down as fast as it would be for a household in California. And so that's something that we need to fix. Um, but the opportunity is there to close that gap with clean energy now. Uh, and it's just it's good economics. It's not, it's not just a green thing to do. It's just the right thing and the fastest thing to do. So that's very much in our favour. Thank you so much. It was great talking great. to you. Thanks. You too.
slightly overwhelming. Some kind of notes of positivity. You said there's a little bit of hope going on and yeah. that there's been a real shift. Yeah, and there's so much happening outside of COP as well. It's not just all inside the official delegation blue zone area. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, this is my first time in the green zone. And yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty crazy, amazing, amazing space. And I think for me, I've been, um, obviously yesterday was Climate Finance Day and we've been talking a lot about how to finance all of this work. I and mean, it's not just about, you know, let's lobby or let's do parliament it's like how where's the money come from and I know that you and I have both worked yes. in that area for quite a while so yeah. like in your in your experience and what you've seen since you joined the Environmental Funders Network what shift have you seen in giving to the environment and how it compares to people and, and how it compares to giving to other causes in the UK yeah well very sadly um, over the years giving to the environment has been absolutely tiny in comparison to things like arts health uh-huh. ed- education especially um, but what we are seeing is an encouraging shift now um, looking back over the last three years we've seen possibly at least 50% if not double um, the amount coming into the environmental sector so what sort of money is that um, we, we track uh, grants from UK-based trusts, foundations um, and lottery mm-hmm. causes into environmental charities in the UK and abroad. Um, and we're looking at, per annum, something like £300 million a year in that's, grants. That's amazing. That's it amazing. sounds a lot. It sounds a lot, of course. Yeah. But then you yeah. think, OK, so cancer research get over half a billion a year and that's one charity yes. and we're talking about every single environmental yes. organisation within just, the UK yeah, all and the abroad. One, all the ones that are funded are by fund, our yeah. members and the people that we kind of track their grant making is. And yeah. so when you put it into that perspective, yes, yeah, you can see that there's, small, still, yeah. there's still a big way to go. We, we think um, our latest research is coming out in a week or so and what we're looking, what we think is happening at the moment is about 6%, somewhere between 55 and 6% of giving by those organisations is going to the environment. And that's up from 3%, if I remember rightly, when I first yeah. read your report a number yeah, of years ago. Three or four only years ago. 3% yeah. giving so to the environment. Things are moving, things are getting better, but it really needs to ramp up a lot quicker. And of course, grant giving is, is big money, usually. Um, my role, um, yeah. I work for Client Earth, an environmental law charity, and yay! yay. <laughs> <laughs> Taking down the coal, coal air plants one at a time. It's, it's an amazing organisation. It is. And I head up their philanthropy team. So I'm basically looking at donations of around ten thousand pounds plus. But these are big. These are big sums. Yeah. So it's been I really. I wish I could give you ten thousand pounds. I just. Don't I was have building it. up to that. <laughs> damn it! Damn it! Um, but what I found so interesting is that the number of people who have added climate, if you like, to their giving portfolio that they've never considered the environment before. And then, interestingly, as it's become more mainstream, but also a lot of people as they've had kids and then seen the impact of air pollution yes. on their children's health, yeah. chemicals, and suddenly yeah. being so Absolutely. much more aware of the chemicals Absolutely. that everyone is putting in their bodies. People against our will. Against our will. We don't choose to. No. The fact that we're all going yeah. to become like little microplastic people is, yeah. is quite a scary thought. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you get all these people that are now looking at how they can give to give big money but of course as you've said and I'm now not going to speak to you again but as you're not giving me ten thousand pounds but you 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 can't you do obviously support causes I do do, do. and you do charity and I obviously do do the same again not at the ten thousand pound level um so you can set up a direct debit if you're kind of just an ordinary person thinking and you don't have access to these insane amounts of wealth you're thinking how can I actually make a difference because I think the thing that's been a block of the environment and giving to the environment is it seems so big so vast and we've been talking about it for so long Um, if you think about climate anxiety which is a thing that our work is really keen on talking about if you were born in the 80s 
quietly raise his hand. Um, <laughs> all your life, you've been yeah. exposed yeah. to climate grief messaging, like the yes. polar bears are dying out, the, the ice caps are the ozone, the greenhouse gases. Like yeah. that's been your entire life. But yet the planet is still here. Mm. And only in the last couple of years have the, the shifts seemed to really ramp up. And I think that's maybe been one of the reasons that people don't give to the environment as much. I, I think also I get a sense that people look to people with more wealth than them at whatever level that is. Um, and they think, well, somebody with more money can help sort it out. But actually we need um, all the instruments in the orchestra. We need people giving it all mm-hmm. sorts of levels in all sorts of ways the best way to give is long term so if yep. you can set up a direct debit if that's your within your gift um, you know the, the charity has time to plan and develop services and develop initiatives and take governments to court it's been such a great pleasure having a chat with you and let's go and explore some more of COP of the green zone of right. the green zone let's go Can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name's Dale Vince, and I'm founder of Ecotricity. Wow. <laughs> it's a pretty cool, pretty cool um, title and human to be in front of me. <laughs> um, so, Ecotricity, for me, I see it as like the good, the good, the good guy of the energy companies, right? Or the good human of the energy companies. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people who want to kind of bring down and break down any fossil fuel energy company and just for that to be illegal now, let's say. Um, That means that we would need you to um, upscale rapidly. How do you think you're you're ready and do you think that 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 is a step forward to this um, kind of transformed future? But I think that um, we've got to break anything here. What we've got to do is change the rules. So right now, uh, our economic system is geared towards fossil fuels. We spend a, a vast sum of money subsidizing fossil fuels every year more than we spend supporting renewable energy. The planning system is geared to support fossil fuels. There's a presumption in favor of them to burn them to make electricity. And where, where meanwhile, onshore wind is actually banned and it's difficult to get planning for other forms of renewables. So that's skewed as well. Um, so taxes, subsidies and regulations are all skewed in favor of fossil fuels. And we just need to change that. And it's not that Ecotricity needs to fill that gap. There's a whole industry out there of people building wind and solar and offshore wind. And, and then there's the emerging technologies the government needs to support renewables, geothermal and tidal lagoon and offshore, for example. Um, so it's not that we need to fill a gap. We collectively need to fill a gap, but we, we can collectively, you know, that we have the means. We have enough wind and sun to power our country probably about 20 times over. You know, with the Saudi Arabia of wind, literally we have 40% of Europe's wind. So there's no shortage of resource. The technology is here. It's the cheapest form of energy we can build. It's clean, it's fast. You know, the only thing holding us back is regulation. Yeah. The economic playing field is skewed. So what can we do as citizens hearing hearing this plea like how can we make a change yeah that's a really tough one I mean um, 
we need a big political change. We need to change the government, actually, or we need the government to, to actually uh, get hold of this and do something serious. At the moment, we just get words, you know, sign up to a coal pledge, allow a coal mine to open, you know, talk big on the climate crisis, and then cut domestic flying tax, for example. That was just last week. I mean, how does that make sense? So we either need a change of government or a change of heart by our government to do something, to actually start to do something rather than just talk about it. And we can make changes in our own lives. Uh, you know, we can switch to green energy. Uh, we can change how we travel. We can change what we eat. They're the big three things, energy, transport, and food. Um, but all of that is a much slower burn process than if the government just changed the rules of the game. So then our job is to vote sensibly that will um, be for a mandate that is to 1.5 degrees as well as people that will actually promise to change the political infrastructure towards greener energy systems and infrastructure. Yeah, when we get the chance, <laughs> right? So when's the election coming? I don't know. And will that issue be... Um, <clears throat> be buried or obscured by more pressing political issues like last time it was Brexit wasn't it got in the way of everything else hopefully it won't be that again but uh, I mean meanwhile I guess we can lobby MPs and campaign and you know speak out and do stuff you know the stuff that activists do all of the time that's all we can do which is um, well it's not enough but it's all we've got well, it's, it's just a matter of like letting everybody know that every single voice counts. So the more people that are engaged in the climate fight, the more of a sway and more um, of, uh, in, in terms of power we have kind of in terms of to making change. That's true. That's true. And, you know, maybe we need to take to the streets and disrupt uh, life as usual, you know, in the way that Insulate Britain are doing it, you know, because there comes a point when... You know, people will say, well, what the hell? You know, I'm not going to sit around and watch this happen and be powerless in this. I'm going to do something disruptive. That's what's happening with Insulated Britain. XR did it, uh, you know, not so long ago. And, you know, we've got a history of that in our country. Non-violent action disrupts the status quo, gets attention sometimes, frequently gets something done. Not always. A million people marched to prevent their war in Iraq, and that didn't work. Mm, that's true. But what, so what about when people are kind of say, but in Chile, Britain really, really being quite annoying for their travel routes, etc., mm. etc., and they're causing, like, it's bad press potentially for the insulation um, industry. And uh, what, what about when people are afraid of being an activist and, and how, how they can kind of be an activist without necessarily putting themselves out by feeling like pests? Yeah, I think it's hard, you know, I think you've got to have the right kind of uh, mindset to be able to do that, to be as obstructive as Insulate Britain are. I think it's quite brave, uh, quite incredible what they do. Um, and it's not for everybody, so not everybody should or could do it, and, and I don't think that matters. We all have to do what we're comfortable doing. Uh, but there's just a lot of people that aren't comfortable anymore, sat around, um, you know, without any real, real say in what's happening. And I can understand that, you know, why should we follow the rules when... When the government doesn't follow the rules, when the government makes promises it has no intention of keeping, uh, it tries to fiddle the electoral system, that's happening right now ahead of the next election. You know, you know why should we follow the rules? These yeah. rules are they anyway? Yeah, not mine. Agreed, agreed. So all we can do is like follow the the nature of the planet, or like actually try and look out for something that matters to us. You know, and if that if if that is breaking rules, then how? then who are making the rule systems in the first place and we need to really reevaluate our rule book. Yeah, agreed. Because, like, you know, we live in a democracy, so say. We've got a right to protest and, and do the stuff we believe in, although that's obviously being clamped down uh, upon with, uh, with new police powers and stuff like that, you know. Uh, but that's, 
that's been going on for decades. So I don't think that really matters. But I think there, there is a strength of feeling uh, amongst an increasing number of people. And, and, you know, the more that grows, the harder it will be to ignore. And, and that's all we've got. But we've got it. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. We're sitting in the cool air. It's a little hot in there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We've come out of a little gathering of mind. Um, can you tell me your name and where you come from? So my name is Juliet Damport, and I come from many places, but I guess originally founder of a company called Good Energy. Um, I do many things in climate, been a climate activist for probably 25 years. And now looking to try and empower as many people as possible to be part of the climate revolution. And so this is, this is a call out to everybody. You don't have to be scared of being a climate activist. You just need to care and find your way in. Um, yeah, completely. I mean, I, I think climate activism can come through business. It can come through what we do in our daily lives. You can be a climate activist just by uh, using less energy every day. Nice. So I hear that Good Energy are one of the most um, kind of companies at the forefront of making change through art as well and investing in art and creativity, which is quite a rare thing to find in the energy sector who are quite segregated into their own little bucket of how they foresee the future. Yeah, I, I think, so So my view has always been one of the biggest challenges about business and climate change has been communication. And I think I was inspired in around 2007, I went to a conference called Tipping Point in Oxford, which was where there were a bunch of artists came together with a bunch of climate scientists to talk about how, art, how important art is in science. And I guess I took away the, from that how important art and communication is in business as well. Mm. So embracing art and understanding the creativity around the artistic process and how that can flow through into a business is so important. It's, so it's like these like scientists or engineers or any kind of person finding out what is going on in the world, right? They have got these like stark facts and figures and they're teaching us... Um, how catastrophic the world is currently, right? <laughs> yeah. But these figures don't mean anything to anyone. They're percentages, they're like yeah. kilowatt hours, they're yeah. whatever they are. And for them to be able to connect with an artist and actually storytell yeah. is quite a, an impressive thing or like a, an important and needed thing. Yeah, and I think we don't, we don't um, talk to our engineers and our scientists about communication enough. So, uh, what, at the age of 16, we suddenly become a scientist mm. or an artist. Mm. Uh, we stop teaching our scientists how to communicate, how to write, how to speak. Mm. Um, and actually, that, I think that's so sad. We lose so much depth. One, I mean, you need creativity in science. It's an incredibly important part of research and innovation. Two, if you can't communicate that science to everybody, what's the point? In doing it, yeah. Um, and it, and it is, it's part of it. I mean, I think all the science 
research funding, part of their remit is communication to the wider public about the science they do. And I just don't think we do it enough. Mm. And I, 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 I was spent some time on one of the um, innovation commissions, um, something called the Natural Environmental Research Council. And w- what was brilliant, what I loved about when we when I left, one of the things they did was got um, climate scientists and artists together to create cartoons, to create sort of um, installations around the science and bring that to public attention. And I don't know whether in its small part it helped, it's helped this wider awareness of climate change, but it is so important. We need it there. And I mean, think about it. We watch, how much time do we watch people spend watching television? That's creativity. Totally. We need we need to tell these stories through the amazing creativity we have around us. But we equally need to tell the stories so that it's not like a story of doom and gloom, that it can be an opportunity and that people can be excited without feeling depressed and anxious and petrified. Completely. I mean, you need, you need people to understand the urgency, but you also need them to have the optimism. And I think that's where creativity can come into play because I think if you tell them you can only do it this way or mm. you can only do it that way, I mean, to be honest, it's absolute rubbish. There's so many different opportunities for people to get involved in climate action um, on a personal business level. And, and that is where the creativity comes to bear. That's, that's where we can start to think outside oh my god this is too hard um i think creativity can break through some of those barriers Mm. so tell me a little bit about good energy oh right well i mean it's (laughs) it was it was 20 years ago over 20 years ago that i I set it up and it was really there the ambition was to um go directly to consumers to engage them in energy and one of the things that was always really different about good was that um, we encouraged and looked after people who generated their own power. So it wasn't just about us building lots of wind farms and solar parks. It was about us working with, I think, nearly 200,000 homes who generate their own power. And, and suddenly, uh, I mean, if every, every home in the UK became a power station, how cool would that be? Very. Um, and I think that was always kind of part of my vision is... is why, do, why keep all the power centrally for the power companies? Why not spread it around and give it to everyone? Very cool. Um, so good energy going forward, prosumers, do, ha, ha, is decentralization the way to help out with the 1.5 man, mandate? Oh, completely. I mean, the, the thing is, you kind of need it all. Hmm. You, you can't, not one part of this marketplace is going to be the hero. You need, everybody needs to be a hero. Right, right. Um, so in the UK, for example, offshore wind is going to be incredibly important. But on the other side of it, making sure that every single consumer, we're just sort of seeing lots of flats around us, is using less power because they've got better house, better quality homes, um, is using power at better times of day. So they, they get reflective of when, when they choose to use their power and, and where possible generating their own power. Um, you need all of that to deliver on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's optimization, energy efficiency, and renewables to make the rest yeah. of it happen. Yeah, makes the world go around. So there you go. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hello. 
nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Can you please tell us your name? Brian O'Donnell. And what do you do? I am the director of Campaign for Nature, which is an effort to protect 30% of the world's lands and oceans by 2030. Great. And if you could tell our listeners one thing that they could do to begin their engagement in the climate fight, what would the one thing be? Make sure they are politically active, that they vote, that they lobby and advocate with their elected officials and decision makers in their country. Thank you so much. Hello, what is your name, please, and where do you come from? Yeah, my name is Richard van der Leyen. I'm from the Netherlands, and I'm the founder of What Design Can Do. And can you tell us if there was one thing you would advise people beginning their climate journey to do, what would you say? Uh, think uh, with a creative mind. That's the most important thing. Thank you. One question for you. Yeah. Nice little pub. If there was one thing that you could say to people who are just beginning to engage in the climate fight, what would your advice to them be? One action that they can take. One action. Okay. <laughs> that's so. That's so difficult because I. I want to give four. Okay. Four. Four very quick actions. See where your energy is coming from. Uh, use. Make sure your home is really well insulated. Uh, get on your bike. If not, change your car to electric and. Cut out as much meat as you can. Thank you. So hi everyone, uh, my name is Sarah Lobo and I work for environmental law charity Client Earth. And I'm very pleased to welcome here today Tish King, who has graciously made time to speak with us today. So Tish is a Kulkagal woman and campaigns director for SeedMob, Australia's Indigenous Youth Climate Network. She's also an organizer for a campaign called Our Islands, Our Home in Zanadith Kess, also known as the Torres Strait. So in the spirit of reconciliation uh, before beginning, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all First Nations people from around the world listening in today. So Tish, thank you so much again for being here and agreeing to answer some questions about the work that you do, about Australia's climate situation, and uh, what you hope to see out of COP. So I'm gonna jump right in. And since we're all the way over here in Glasgow, uh, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about the climate impacts that are facing Australia and the Torres Strait. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me. So excited to be here uh, in, in Glasgow. Uh, I too would actually like to um, extend those respects to the First Nations people here, which um, here in Glasgow, like, Gaelic people um, but you know how uh, you know there's a lot of emotions running with you know COP26 out there and lots of conversations um, but you know to share a little bit um, about uh, you know the climate impacts that you know Australia is facing is really where to start you know Australia is the what a huge huge um, uh, continent with you know different ecosystems but you know starting at the top in the Torres Strait Islands, we are uh, the communities and uh, island communities up there are facing um, already overfishing, uh, coral bleaching. Uh, oceans warming uh, causing acidification and this is not including you know 
during monsoonal seasons, which is wet season in Australia, where we have cyclones that, you know, each year are getting um, more fierce and more dangerous where, uh, you know, the uh, our meteorology is actually sh- changing or, or creating new categories because they're more intense. And so with this and from those impacts, we're seeing sea levels rising at an exorbitant rate where erosion is just taking um meters and meters of uh islands um from in, especially in the central island group the kokogal nation and in the top western we have inundation where you know island communities are living essentially underwater it's so intense but you know this is not including the rest of mainland australia where you know people might commonly know the you know recent bushfires that we had in australia along the east coast we have um you know coral bleaching all down the west coast of australia we have flash flooding which is dangerous to you know those remote communities and and again adding the pandemic that we are all living under Wow, thank you so much for sharing all of that and and giving us sort of a sense of what people are experiencing on a daily and weekly and monthly basis. And, 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 you know, it's it's important to remember that this is not something that is new, but also not something that's going away. So um, in kind of in the spirit of all of that, what do you hope to see out of COP and and kind of what do you hope that leaders will commit to to try to address some of these issues? Yeah, really great question, Sarah. Like, importantly, it's about uh, uniting and standing shoulder to shoulder with, uh, you know, other uh, Indigenous peoples across the globe who are actually uh, on the front lines of the same impacts as, you know, Torres Strait Island people and Aboriginal people of Australia. Um, And together, you know, really uh, putting uh, pressure on our governments to make more um, ambitious goals and targets to implement to see that we have a a safe and just future for all, an equal future for all. And so, you know, it's a big reason actually why I am here at COP, you know, as a proud Torres Strait Islander, being able to, you know, amplify our islands, our home campaign and share the stories of um, those frontline communities in the Torres Strait Islands. And so I did just mention uh, our islands are home. So for folks that are tuning in, a little bit of context. Our islands are home is is an incredible campaign, um, which is a collaboration between 350 Australia, Client Earth Lawyers, GBK Land and Sea, and Seed Mob, who are Australia's first and only Indigenous organisation. And so, uh, here to not only just for Torres Strait Islander people, but, you know, to uh, stand in solidarity with all First Nations people to, uh, you know, act act on, you know, that pressure for our, uh, on our political leaders. Amazing. And can you tell me a little bit more about uh, maybe that campaign or some of the things that you're uh, campaigning for here at COP? Yeah. I mean, you know, as I sort of mentioned, there are so many different uh, uh, environmental impacts that are already being in uh you know, impacting communities in the Torres Strait Islands. And so here, being here, being able to share that message and tell the word that, you know, we can share the message that from the Torres Strait to Glasgow, we have these incredible eight claimants standing up, you know, with their strength and resilience, you know, fighting to protect country and culture and climate. 
and fighting to hold governments to account and saying, you know, failing to uh, address climate impacts, failing to address things like sea level rise. Uh, the, one of the, the, our islands, our home case itself is a legal case that has been brought to the United Nations over Australia's alleged climate inaction. And, and there's the, a really clear human rights link there, right? Because uh, you, maybe you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, oh, well, absolutely. And I'm sorry, I was like, I should have started off <laughs> with that. Sorry, folks. Um, but absolutely, like, you know, it is about that connection of the, you know, who is impacted because First Nations not just uh, in Australia, but across the globe, you know, make up 5% of the population, yet look after 80% of biodiversity. Yet we are hit first and worst from climate impacts when we actually don't contribute to our nation's emissions. And not just that, especially in Australia, our brothers and sisters in Asia, in the Pacific, are being impacted by our government's, uh, you know, impacts and so it's not just for us but it's for all yeah and it's things like right to life and right to property and mm. right to culture and right to a clean and healthy environment and also uh the right for future generations to be able to access things like land absolutely like access to clean water to clean air to be able to live on their land and practice culture hunts like you know when as our you know as our land is shifts you know so do our practices and so we are not only feeling the brunt of these environmental impacts but it's those cultural those connections you know we are country and you know when country is hurting we are hurting thank you so much for sharing all of that and i i just want to leave people with one last point and and i'm going to pose you a question which is what can people do who are listening in today and want to get involved uh you know, that's such an important, uh, you know, question. Um, and so, look, folks out there tuning in, we are at a crucial moment in our lives right now. And the way that we are occupying this planet is just not working anymore. And so we have to come together collectively to stand up and stand shoulder to shoulder and, you know, fight for a just and for a just future for all to survive and to thrive. And so, you know, to stay up to date with this incredible um, campaign, head to ourislandsourhome.com.au or jump on our socials at our islands our home um either on fay oh, instagram and twitter awesome amazing thank you so much again tish for being here today it is an absolute pleasure to have you and we really hope that you enjoy the rest of your time in glasgow oh mina eso which means thank you very much uh, for having me here and having a yarn with you Next up, music and climate. We are talking to musicians across multiple disciplines to gather inspiration and ideas. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Inside Cop. Hello, hello. Um, great to be here. <laughs> cool. Can you give us a little introduction? Tell us your name and a little bit about yourself. Hi, so um, my name's Gabriel Prokofiev. I'm a composer and um, I'm obviously, like a lot of people here, a really a strong believer in doing something about the climate crisis and um, I've, I'm presenting a piece I composed earlier this year called Pastoral 21 which is a 
it's a reflection on the whole concept of pastoral music, especially Beethoven. It's reacting to what he did 250 years ago. But the, the whole concept of pastoral has completely changed now that we're in a climate crisis. relationship with nature is is being profoundly affected by human um destruction of the planet and so this piece is exploring you know what, what does pastoral mean now how can we still enjoy nature yes we can but it's kind of tinged with sadness with regrets there's a sense of lament there's anger and it's for string sextet the piece and live electronics which i perform and we're going to be performing this on sunday at stereo especially to, to, to reach out to people at COP and to kind of give an artistic musical angle on the situation. That sounds absolutely stunning. And I think this is um, something that we've been talking about a lot is the connection to our emotions when we're inside this climate fight and like for everybody to actually understand that there, there are a lot of emotions that come when you start to engage in the climate fight. So I suppose this is your personal response but then are you also looking at kind of past generations and the intergenerational um queries that surround yes yeah yeah, our climate and climate change definitely i mean i this piece i actually follow the structure of beethoven's pastoral symphony and his was this ode to nature was a celebration of nature and so i started imagining what how would he feel if he came to the planet earth as it is now and I thought, you know, he'd be he'd be devastated. He'd see familiar nature, but then he'd be aware of the constant hum of traffic, the pollution, the damage to the environment, and the impending cl- climate crisis that gets worse. You know, he has a storm in his symphony. Now we're, we're seeing storms like we've never seen before. And um, 
so um for me it was really about um yeah a pers- a personal message and and the, the, this this sadness that we now have when we think about nature you know on one hand i try to reflect the beauty but there's always a there's this kind of uncertainty and a, and a doubt and and there's anger as well there, there's some quite aggressive moments in the piece there's even one section when we go to a mega farm and it turns into this kind of almost techno kind of hellish environment which is kind of one of the extreme things that's happening in 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 the countryside these days you know sort of complete in- industrialization of nature I was going to ask that if we could hear, so we can hear the new world overlapping as a kind of the um, Anthropocene of the human impact of the climate over Beethoven's past world that was presented a lot more calm and peaceful. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the actual, the, the performance we're doing, it starts with the first movement of the Beethoven arranged for strings, six strings, and then afterwards it goes into my response to that. And um, some of the pieces are really are, are, are quite aggressive. There's there's one piece called "Be Ready," which is like a siren, really, a kind of siren of warning of the of the the, the crisis that's upon us. Can't wait! Thank you Great. so much for coming on. Thanks so much. Introducing Eno Insights. This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways to save the planet. Yes, it's all looking good. A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great, let's dive in. So, a lot of human decisions. In fact, a lot of the most crucial decisions that you make in your life are made not on the basis of evidence in the sort of scientific sense or, or education or reading or evaluation. Not because we're stupid or lazy, but because you often cannot. You cannot do that in many cases. For instance, the people you find as your friends and spend your time with and as your partners and maybe your mates in the end, it's feelings that lead you to them. And why is that? It's, and it's, it's because there isn't much in the way of evidence. Um, you just don't know what somebody is going to be like in 10 years' time. You don't know who you're really talking to. It's, it's a sense that you have about them that you trust. But feelings have almost no place in science. And that's not to criticize science, but feelings are inherently hard to quantify, to measure, to compare, to even know if we're talking about the same thing. Like if I say I'm depressed, is that what you think? Is that what you mean when you say you're depressed? Is that the same? We don't even know that these things we call feelings are common to us all. So so it's been left out of the picture. But Of course, art is completely about feelings. Art is about how you feel about this experience you're having. And why is that important then? Why, uh, of course, one thing, sorry, I should have said prior to that, because art is about feelings, it is sort of seen as being outside of the zone of serious, discussable 
measurable, quantifiable things. So we talk about art and science as being different because one of them you can quantify and the other you can't. And of course, we're a technical civilization, so we value the quantifiable much more than the unquantifiable. We can do something with that information. We can make things with it. We can build bridges. We can't build bridges with feelings, um, is the theory. Emotional bridges. Well, yeah, that's another story. Relationship bridges. <laughs> well, I don't want to go there. Okay. Um, that's metaphorical. And that's, that's slightly different. Um, but the question is, why do we have feelings? What point do they have? We all have them. Um, and I think we have them because feelings are the beginning of thinking. It's not that feelings are outside of thinking. They are the fundamental thoughts. The rest that follows, the, the more rational and the measurable and the assignable and a sort of planable stuff that we do with our brain, is the stuff that follows feeling and is an attempt to act on feeling. But feeling is at the beginning of it. And there's, there's a neuropsych... What? It's just the one minute thing. Okay. I'm not very good at those signs. I know. You I'm, I'm used to lecturing, you see. Okay. Um, I won't talk about Mark Solms then. Hold on. Um, what I think we're doing when we look at art, we're, first of all, rehearsing the ability to have feelings. That's, also, that's very important to acknowledge that you can produce feelings. A lot of people get stuck with that. They can't even do that. They don't take them seriously, so they suppress them. So first of all, you have to recognize that you have feelings. Secondly, you have to recognize that that is how you make a lot of your decisions. And thirdly, you have to understand that feelings are where you digest things. So I have this saying, science discovers, art digests. Science helps you discover things about the world. You know that this material here can be heated to 406 degrees centigrade and will turn into something else. But it doesn't ever tell you how to feel about things or what use those that knowledge is in terms of your being, your personality, your life. So to digest things, you need art. You need to see those experiences embodied within a life's a narrative of some kind, inside a story. You know, the surveillance, take, take the idea of surveillance. We all know that it exists and that you can uh, put cameras in lavatories or kitchens or wherever you want, and you can watch people. That's a scientific fact, and it's about a scientific technology. But what do we think about that? How do we feel about that? Well, then you need books. You need 1984, or you need films like Minority Report, or you need, you need ways of seeing what life would be like with this new thing added. It's not just to say, oh, it's great to have this new thing. That's not good enough. You've got to see what kind of life do we then have with this new thing. And I think, um, I think that's what art does for us. It gives us a way of understanding other lives we could be lead leading or may well end up leading. Really losing my head, my head, my head, 
my head. I want to say a huge thank you to our speakers, Sally Mulhook, Sherry Kennedy, Richard van der Laken, Jim Walker, Juliet Davenport, Emily Thomas, Julie Christie, Tish King, Dale Vince, Brian O'Donnell, Brian Eno, Gabriel Prokofiev, and everyone for listening. Thank you. Find my head. Not at first 